We're looking this morning at the subject, a Savior for all time and all sin, in our text is Hebrews chapter 7. If you look at your bulletin outline, the first point is that the people God saves are those that come to Him. In our last study, we discovered that God has written in the book of life by name those who shall be saved. This has to do with the decrees of God. And while we need to know this about the saved, we, that is to say none of us, can live our lives in our time-space history by the decrees of God. Now we do live out our lives in accordance with what God has decreed, but we cannot peek into His decrees and read them and understand them and then try to order our lives accordingly. No, the Bible does not approach us as little gods, but as mortals. And as mortals, the principle for living is stated by God Himself in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. And it reads this way. The secret things belong to God, to the Lord our God, and the things revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of His law. The secret things belong to Him, but the things revealed in His word belong to us. So we have this difference between us and God. And while the Bible speaks of God's decrees, election, predestination, redemption, judgment, and so forth, nowhere are we invited to order our lives according to what we think we know about His decrees. These things are God's work. And while these things affect us, we do not get to play God by second-guessing Him. Now, let me illustrate it to try to help us get a grasp of this. The teachings of the Reformer, John Calvin, concerning election and predestination, these are some of the decrees of God, were then used by a number of men who became known as hyper-Calvinists. The word hyper meaning above or beyond. That is to say, they went beyond what Calvin taught. They went above what he envisioned in terms of what he discovered in the Scripture. And so, they did this by trying to fashion their preaching on what they discovered about the decrees of God. Calvin did not do this. If you read his commentaries, if you read his theological works, you will find none of this there. But some of his followers did. And the Baptists were not innocent in this either. How this worked out may be illustrated in the ministry of Dr. John Gill, predecessor to Spurgeon. Dr. Gill would preach to people and he would refuse to give, he would refuse to give a general call to sinners to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, believing as he did that the number of the elect is fixed by the decree of God. So, now here's the faulty logic, so it is fruitless exercise to call sinners to Christ. 
because God himself will see to it that the elect are saved without any such appeal. Sinners then, or that is to say any audience listening to Dr. Gill preach, were never challenged to do anything because in his view, God's decree sealed it all. Now there's, that, there's truth to that, that God's elect are sealed. That's a fixed number. But his conclusions as to how to relate to that are wrong. And, I, and you say, well, who are you to talk against Dr. Gill? Where's your theology? Well, I haven't written any theology. But God has shown us some things in the scripture. What Dr. Gill and all other hyper-Calvinists did and do was to ignore the doctrine of personal responsibility everywhere taught in Scripture and the accompanying truth, namely that God has not only decreed the salvation of the elect, but also the means by which the elect come to salvation. That is, through repentance and faith, coming to uh, under conviction, and seeking Christ that he may be found. None of this is attributed to sinners apart from God's enablement. That's true. But neither are sinners to sit passively on the sideline bearing no responsibility for their own indifference and unbelief, especially in light of such clear commands that we find in Scripture. Commands like Jesus' words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Or again, we read in the uh, Psalms, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. Psalm 145, verse 18, verse 19. Or in Jesus' ministry himself, Mark records it for us. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, verse 15. From the very lips of our Lord himself. Now notice, all of these are general appeals the biblical prophets or preachers did not revert to their knowledge or belief in the decrees of God. They did not preach, come to God through Christ and be saved, but I know you won't do this because if you're not the elect of God. That's not what they preached. Nor did they say, believe in Jesus, but I know that faith is the gift of God and you won't come unless He gives you faith. No, no, they did not go there. And they did not go there out of, not out of deception, but they did not go there because to do so is to intrude into the secret things of God and to ignore the things that are revealed. Observe now how the author of Hebrews speaks of the people who are saved by God. It's in verse 24 of our text. 24 and following. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. The people whom God saves are people who come to him. The God to whom people must come 
is not the God of Islam, which does not have so much as one reference in the Quran to the word love. And yet the Bible expressly states, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4 Verse 8, same chapter, verses 14 and following. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. And in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. That is, we learn how to love one another. And that's proof that God's working in our hearts. Now many religions in the world promote a God of man's own invention. But salvation is not to be found in any of them. God himself declares, for this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Or again, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Isaiah 43, verse 10 through 12. Now there was a time in the world at large, when the world at large was in dark, in the dark to God's salvation. Because the Bible was not disseminated among all people groups. But there's no excuse for that ignorance now. God says, I have revealed, I have saved, I have proclaimed. This is the only God who saves and to whom people must come for salvation. We do not come to church for salvation. We do not come to ceremonies for salvation. We do not come to prayers or rituals or candle lightings or pious chants for salvation. We come to God and we come to the God of the Bible. The only God that is as revealed in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. That is whom the Lord saves. And if people don't come to this God through this means, there is no salvation. Number two, the people God saves leave everything else behind. Coming to God implies coming away from other things. God is unique. He says so. He declares that there is no other. He says so. He therefore is not about to share the podium of divinity with lesser things. Salvation is not a partnership between you and God. Your task is not to come expecting to bring your thoughts, your ideas, your procedures with you as viable 
contributions for your acceptance by God. The methodology of the world is, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That is to say, we barter. We expect to give a little that we might gain a little. We anticipate that salvation is something of a give-and-take contract. And we are shocked and rather irritated that God does not barter. That instead, salvation is for His glory and He's not about to share it with us. That God, as we view it, has the audacity to say to us, as He does say to us, it's my way or the highway. It's a take it or leave it salvation that begins and then is initiated and finally ends with God alone, as we saw last week. The plan, the implementation, the completion. Jesus gave the basic principle in His Sermon on the Mount. Everyone likes to read the Sermon on the Mount, but if they understood all the implications, it might change their mind. Here's what He said. No one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. Now, money here stands for more than the capital in your bank account or the stocks in your stock portfolio. It represents whatever it is that you treasure. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verse 21. And he is saying, he is saying that you love what you treasure. Now, for some people, that is money. Paul is honest about that. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, Timothy, you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. So here is the dilemma that we face. God in His kingdom or money. It's a real dilemma for a lot of people. God in His kingdom or money. Or we could say it this way. God in salvation or wealth. And we protest. We say, now wait a minute. Now just wait a minute here. Why can't we do both? Why can't I love God and love money? Because your heart, your love, is divided. It is compromised between the tangible and the eternal. Between the things of this world and the things of eternity. And God is not about to give up first place in your heart so you can pamper the flesh with what money can buy for you. Idolatry, if it is anything, is a replacement for the exclusivity of God. He says that He alone is God. 
But those who love money or riches attempt to prove them wrong through divided loyalties. And God refuses to play second fiddle in your band. It's me or, but it can't be both and. Well, some, however, are not that enamored with money. Their treasure, their interests are in other areas. They don't love money to that degree, but they love family or they love friends. So what the family thinks, what the family wants or desires, how they view life is more important than God and His salvation. We are studying Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings. And as we've been studying, we learned that Christian fled from the city of destruction, striking out on his own, leaving Christiana, his wife, and his children behind. Not because he did not want them to accompany him, but because after all of his persuasion, after his honest entreaty and warnings that God's destruction was coming on their city, they were not convinced. They still wanted the things their city afforded them, the pleasures of sin. They refused to go on the journey with him. So he struck out on his own. And the lesson here is this. Had he capitulated to their unbelief, he would have treasured them more than God. And in so doing, disobeyed the warning of Jesus, which is this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26 and 27. Now this is not a text telling us to hate our family members except by comparison to God because elsewhere we are taught, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Elsewhere we are taught that Paul instructed Timothy, or Titus rather, to have the older women in the faith train the young women to love their husbands and their children, Titus 2, verse 4. But Jesus' words have an irrevocable command backing them. When he says that if we do not hate our family members and carry his cross, We cannot be as disciples. That irrevocable command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Mark 12, verse 30. Now reading that, you can see there is room for only one love like this in your life. It is an exclusive love that dwarfs all other loves. The love of God is first. The love of God is foremost because He is first and foremost. When you die, you face God, not family. When judgment comes, love of family will not preserve your life. Our filial ties are are part of this temporal 
existence. You will see in glory only those who, like you, have come to God through Christ. And when you see them, you will not relate to them in the same way as here. Jesus said it this way, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Luke 20, verse 34 through 36. May I can say it this way, believers, male or female, become the bride of Christ, so that eternity as now will have no other gods before the Lord, no love larger to whom you are devoted. So when people come to God, they must of necessity leave behind anything else that they have loved up to that point, be it money or family or position or power or whatever. It is as Solomon so aptly reported, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15. The people God saves leave everything behind. Christ God becomes the central focus. Number three, those who come to God must come only through Jesus Christ. Verse 25 of our text. Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Within context here, the writer is making a contrast between the Old Testament sarsodotal system, the priestly system, and the new. Many religions of the world have copied the concept of priestly intervention without copying the essence of atonement. Buddhism has priests, but only as supposed visionary spiritual teachers to teach people how to save themselves through enlightenment or self-actualization, as they call it. Get to know yourself. Hinduism has priests, too. But there's a world of difference between sacrificing a chicken to God for one's own sin and the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus. Not to mention the pantheism. There are many gods of which Jesus is just one. Hinduism has over 5,000 Deities. Everything's a God. The cow's a God. The tree's a God. The water's a God. God is in all. Therefore, all is God. Sorry, you believe that. There is no salvation. Islam has their emirs, their atollas, again, as spiritual teachers, but little place for Jesus Christ, though he's mentioned one time in the Quran, Mormons believe Christ to be God, but no more than they themselves who are in the process of becoming gods. J. 
Jehovah's Witnesses have a place for Jesus as a man, but they deny His deity. None of this is acceptable to God. All of this is an abomination of abominable idolatry. It's a breach of God's command. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 20, verse 3 through 5. God considers it hatred when you go to idolatry instead of Him. Now the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, does not, does not present to us another God, as the Muslims mistakenly surmise. Jesus said to Philip, his disciple, and he says to us all, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, they're not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. John 14, verse, verse 9, verse 10. Now note, not two gods, or even three if we contemplate the Holy Spirit, but one God, one essence of God, one God nature shared by three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How's that work out? It means that each one is just as holy, just as righteous, just as all-powerful, just as eternal as the other persons thus one God. Every attribute you can say about the Father, you can say about Jesus Christ. Father? Can you say that about Jesus Christ? He is called the Eternal Father in Isaiah chapter 9. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, we believe in Jehovah. Jehovah is an Englishization of the Hebrew I am. It would probably shock them to death to understand what Jesus says in John chapter 8 when he calls himself the I am of the Old Testament. Anything you can say about the Father can be said about Christ. Anything you say about Jesus Christ, you can say about the Holy Spirit. That's the one God part. Father isn't any different. They don't think any differently than the Son. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything that's different. They are all one God. And this one God has ordained that salvation from sin is only for those who come to God through Jesus Christ. Paul commands us as believers to pray for all men. And he says it this way, This pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is 
One God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 through 6. Say, well, how'd this all come about? Well, the Trinity in conference determined among themselves who among them would come to earth and become a man so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so you do have different emphasis in the Trinity. You have the Father sending and you have the Son coming and you have the Holy Spirit applying the work of the Son to the hearts of sinners. But they're all in agreement. The plan is one. The saved are all locked into their thoughts. Peter echoes the same thinking in Acts 4 verse 12 as he spoke before the Jewish council. He said, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12 and he's referring to the name of Jesus Christ. Now we say, well where are these preachers getting this stuff? How can they make such exclusive claims for Jesus? They are simply repeating the claims of Christ himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Well, what about the other religions who teach otherwise? What about the other priests who perform their atoning rituals? What about them? Jesus answers, All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Think, think of the competitive religions here, whom Paul says, Abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 why there are so many religions in the world. We have another would-be God out there. His name is Satan. And from the beginning, he, is trying to, he has tried to usurp God's authority and take his place. Jesus goes on, I have come, speaking of the sheep, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 verse 8 through 11, and you'll not find any other priest doing that in any other of the religions of the world, but our Christ did. And so those who come to God must come through the only door that leads into his presence in peace, that is Jesus his son, and anyone else is considered a thief and a robber destined for judgment, not salvation. Make sure you're coming through the right door to the right place. Christ says, I'm the gate, I'm the door, better come. Through me. The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. All that come to God through Christ, he's able to save them. Now that leads us then to our last point. What is the capability of Jesus to save? This is a tall order, don't you think? I think it is. Well, number one, his death, his death paid the debt of sin for all who repent and believe. Just ask yourself this question. How effective were, or if you want to go to the present day, how effective are animal 
sacrifices. You ever think about that? I mean, some will say, hey, even the Jewish community before uh, in the olden days were commanded by God to come before Him with the proper animal sacrifice, right? Yeah, right. Well, they were proper sacrifices, but they weren't perfect sacrifices. They were commanded by God, but they were not complete. They were temporary, but they weren't eternal. They were agreeable to God, but not effectual. They made a way for an audience with God on the earthly plane, but they did nothing for entering heaven wherein God dwells. So where are you getting that? From the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Listen to this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? He's talking about the animal sacrifices. For the worshiper would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, are an annual reminder of sins because, here it is, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10, 1-4. Do we need ask this question, do we need to be made perfect to be saved? He says here that these sacrifices never made perfect those who drew near to worship. So that's a good question. Now contrast this with what the Bible says about the sacrifice of Christ's own body. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. He's talking about the earthly priests. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Again, he's referring to the animal sacrifices. But, he goes on, when this priest, speaking of Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14. How perfect do you got to be to get to heaven? You have to be perfect. And only one sacrifice is able to do that. Not only was Jesus' sacrifice perfect, but his person was perfect. We have it in our text. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifice day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Now, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law the Mosaic Law, appoints as high priests men who are weak 
By weak, this author means sinful. But the oath which came after the law, God's oath, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, verse 28 and 29. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus can save completely because he is perfect in his person. Verse 26 says, Holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. What was the law's penalty for sin? The wages of sin is death. A life for a life. Now notice, not a sheep for a woman, or a bullock for a man, but a perfect person for a sinner person. And Jesus alone fills that bill. The animal sacrifices were a stop gap measure, a sin covering, but not a sin eradicator. But when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist revealed his atoning capabilities when he said this, Look, look, the Lamb of God that takes away not just covers, but takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. Let me tell you something. Sin's debt is not canceled. It's paid for. Paid for in the blood of this lamb. And that's why you have all this lamb terminology in the scripture. A lot of it's in the book of Revelation where it talks about Christ as the lamb. Or Paul says in Corinthians that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. They're, they're coming to this lamb terminology to show us there were lambs in the Old Testament, those animals that were offered as a stopgap measure until the lamb of God would come. Those little guys, those little woolly creatures in the Old Testament, yeah, their sacrifice covered over the sin was a stopgap measure. But this lamb, the lamb of God, he actually takes away. He can take away and eradicate your sin. All of the Old Testament sacrifices looked down the court of history to this Jesus that was coming. That's the first truth. Christ is able to save all that come to God through him because he paid, he paid the indebtedness through his own blood. Secondly, he's able to save completely because, verse 25, he always lives to intercede for them. Verse 23, 24, Now there have been many of those priests, speaking of the Old Testament days, since death, prevented them from continuing in office. Why were there so many Old Testament priests? Because they died off. Real simple. Born, live, get priesthood, die. Born, live, get priesthood, die. Aaron couldn't live forever. Eliezer couldn't live forever. They died because the wages of sin is death and they were sinners. Wages of sin was paid to them just like anybody else. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But 
because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Hebrews 7, verse 24. That's the difference. And here we observe the importance of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, he was crucified in a physical body. And yes, they nailed him to a tree. And yes, they thrust a spear in his side, though he was already dead. And yes, they took him down from the cross and embalmed him with oil and spices. And yes, they laid him in a stone-cold tomb and fixed a huge capstone on the entrance. They did all of those things. He really did die. And if that, were the, if that were the end of the story, it would also be the end of you and me. Hell's fire would be lapping at your door, drooling for the day when you would take your last breath and join the demons and the devil in the pit. Paul's sober analysis is this. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And, here it is, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is to say they've died while they were believing in Christ, are, get the next word now, are lost. Lost. He goes on. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 through 19. Pretty important, isn't it? Resurrection. Some foolish people welcome death. They think death will end their physical pain or their emotional or spiritual pain. Let me tell you this morning that death is not your friend. It is not the answer to your pain, be it physical or emotional or spiritual. There's a heaven to be won and a hell to be conquered, neither of which is possible apart from resurrection, life. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That means Jesus' sacrifice too. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 27. No sacrifice for sins. This is where you go. This is what you have to look forward to. It will be a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You see, the Bible calls death our enemy. Calls, us, calls death our enemy. Paul writes, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under His feet, Jesus' feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and 20. Seven. So you better hope and pray that there is a resurrection and that Jesus' resurrection is historically true. You don't want to give up any doctrines. 
that are taught in God's Word. They're all intertwined, interlinked. Resurrection is the proof that He has defeated death for His people and snatched them from the flames of hell. That He has defeated, can I say it, the last enemy. Well, if He defeated 99.4% of enemies, but not the last enemy... We're in trouble. Satan, the murderer, is depicted in the book of Zechariah. And here's what the prophet writes. Then he, that is God, showed me Joshua the high priest. Another one of these high priests, long down in history, a long ways from Aaron, of course. Later history, still having the priesthood going on because these guys die off, got to get new ones. God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Zechariah 3, verse 1 and 2. And in the next verse, verse 3, it talks about Joshua the high priest being dressed in dirty, filthy clothes. And in verse 4, it explains that those dirty, filthy clothes represent his sin. His sin. I can say to every sinner here this morning, no matter the degree of your sin, no matter the nature of your sin, no matter the amount of your sin, no matter how much a child of hell you are right now, with your toes hanging over the precipice of the bottomless pit and the smell of smoke saturating your clothing, you're not hopeless yet. You're not a goner yet. Christ Jesus, who has died more. Christ Jesus, who has come out of the grave, ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, stands ready to snatch you as a burning brand from the fire. And if you will renounce your sin and take his hand in faith, he will do that. Save yourself from this evil generation. Run to Jesus quickly. Never look back. He'll never regret it because Jesus is the Savior mighty to save and there is no other. There's no other. Lot's wife couldn't quite get the concept. She had to Just, just one more time. Obey God. Come to God. Leave what you love and you'll be saved. But she had to see for herself one more time the city she loved.
better take an examination of where your heart is and what you love and what your priorities in life. Jesus put it this way. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Oh, what a prize. The world, my soul in hell for eternity. The world now lost forever. Is that a prize? That's the pit. Our Father, may your word strike us as the sword that it is. Bring to us a knowledge and an appreciation for the salvation that comes from God. How blessed we are to have a perfect Savior making a perfect sacrifice in himself so that we might be made perfect and brought into not a tent or a building that's a, that's a worship center, but brought into the very courts of heaven itself wherein dwells righteousness, where we are brought into God's very home. Now, what is it that we want most? What is it that we love most? Lord, if we love other things more than this, uh, we are proving the scriptures true that men love evil because their hearts are evil. And they prefer sin because that's where they're at. I pray that you will stir people's hearts today and draw them away from those affections and loves. Do the work of Savior as you did for Joshua the priest. Snatch us, Lord, today like a fire that stick that's already on fire. We're already, you know, the smell, smell of our torment is already in our nostrils. Snatch us from that, Lord, and plant us on the solid ground of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wash us in the blood of Jesus. Extinguish the flames through his righteousness. That we might be brought into the family of God. And what blessing that is. None of us will regret that. None of us here that have come to know Christ ever regret that. We are not like Lot's wife. We are not longing to go back to the good old days because the good old days weren't so good. They were wicked days, not good days. Please deliver us from ourselves. Grant to us that faith and repentance that we need. Use thy word to stir our hearts in Jesus' name.